Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you today again. Although it's like winter. Um, what happened with that? <laughs> yeah, he laughed. It's winter in Texas. I know, it's coming. I'm going to look like, uh, oh, what's his name at the end of The Shining when he's dead in the snow, all frozen. Jack Nicholson. I'm going to look like that come February. I know. Well, it's good to be here. No travel issues this time. Praise the Lord. Um, I didn't have to go back to our nation's capital uh, to get here, so that's, that's always uh, good things. So glad to be here today. Glad that you're here today. Uh, braving this, uh, as I think I was told by someone, balmy weather. It's literally Christmas in San Antonio right now. That's pretty much what it looks like. Um, anywho, glad to be here today. This morning we're going to talk about uh, a toilet bowl mentality. And some of you have probably seen that on social media and you're like, I have no idea what this crazy guy's going to be talking about today. I promise it'll make sense in the end. Um, there's this great restaurant in uh, Indianapolis called St. Elmo's. And it's world-renowned um, for their food. And one of the things that they're supposed to do really well is steak. You know, there's another one not too far away from here uh, called Morton's of Chicago that's kind of, you know, world famous for their steak. So I want you to imagine with me this morning that St. Elmo's, Morton's of Chicago, you take your pick of where you want your steak to come from. How many of you like steak, by the way? Raise your hand. Oh, good. I'm amongst friends this morning. Uh, if you're a vegetarian, we apologize. Our food ate yours. Uh, I live in Texas, and so we do lots of cow uh, on our plate. Um, so let's imagine that the best chef at these restaurants cooks you, you know, one of those steaks with the cows, you know, uh, in, in Japan where they, like, have them on tempur mattresses, and they never move their entire lives, and they bottle feed them. You know what I'm talking about? It's called, like, a kashi beef or something like that. And they literally treat these cows better than you treat yourself. Um, and so the meat is supposed to be unbelievably tender, um, but it's super expensive too. Um, I've been told, because uh, it's way outside of my, my price line. But let's pretend this morning that we have one of these uh, mattress cows uh, on our plate. Thick, juicy ribeye or New York strip, you take your pick, whichever you like. I prefer a New York strip, it's less fatty. That means I get more meat and less fat. I'm all about the abundance of the meat. So that's what I'm going with this morning is a New York strip, and it's going to be about an inch and a quarter thick, and it's going to be cooked medium rare, and it's going to be charred on the outside, and it's going to be delicious, and I'm getting very hungry talking about it. Now, there's a catch to eating this one in a million steak. You have to eat the steak off of a toilet bowl. How many of you are still in? By a show of hands. Thank you. <laughs> Who else? Don't be shy. You're amongst friends. Thank you. Yes, I'm totally in. You're my spirit animal this morning. Absolutely, I would still do it. Okay, now, for those of you who are like, that's disgusting. You guys are awful. This is a one in a million steak, by the way. You should totally eat it. How many of you would do it if we grabbed one of the computer keyboards in one of the offices and brought it up here and put the steak on the computer keyboard by a show of hands? Who would eat it then? Ah, a few more people raised their hands. Gotcha. All right. Thank you for playing right into the trap. They have done a scientific study, and this will blow your mind. The average toilet seat in America has 49 germs per square inch of real estate on that particular throne. The average keyboard in the average office in America has 21,000 germs per square inch. So, your keyboard that you put your hands all over is disgusting, filthy, way more than a toilet. So for all of you that put on industrial strength rubber gloves when you're in public and use the restroom, you're wasting your time if you're going into back to work and typing without those gloves on your keyboard. <laughs> 
So see, the point is, is it's so obvious, right, that a toilet is disgusting, that it's gross. I honestly wouldn't want to eat anything off of it, but if it was one of those, I might. But it's obvious, right, that it's that gross. That's why all of you are like, no. And the four or five of us that were like, I'm in. We already knew the stats, so we weren't as worried about it. But see, we treat a lot of times sin the same way. We have the toilet sins that are the obvious, the gross ones, the ones that everybody can pick out, they can pinpoint, and they're like, oh yeah, that's a toilet, it's gross. We go, oh, that's sin and that's bad. But a lot of times we miss the sins that are on our office desk. And the thing about the keyboard is so much of the gunk and the garbage is actually trapped underneath the keys. So it's hidden, it's unseen, it's not super obvious. How many of you will go into your office or your computer at home with a little different outlook the next time you sit down to type an email? You're going to be like, oh. But sin is the same way in our lives. Often, what lies beneath the surface of something that seems harmless and the things that most people can't easily point out and recognize in our lives are so much more destructive to our lives than those obvious things that we're so quick to point out and go, ooh, gross, a toilet, don't touch that. When I was prepping for this, I told my wife, I'm like, you're always so, you know, and the kids like, ooh, don't touch anything in the bathroom, don't do anything, blah, blah, And then they come home, and they're like, all over, and I'm like, oh, that's gross, you know, now don't touch that. The secret Things, what's hidden underneath is what's so harmful. You know, the devil loves to do this. The enemy wants to package sin in such a way that it seems harmless, it's attractive, it's appealing, it just doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. It just lies underneath the surface. You know, one of the biggest issues that we have in our society today is the internet. It can be good. It can be bad. It can be really bad. Do you know that worldwide, the pornography industry across the world makes, okay, this is not what they, what they bring in, this is their profit, $57 billion a year in profits. That's after they've paid their bills. $57 billion dollars. In the United States alone, it's $12 billion that they make. Now, if you took every NBA team, every NFL team, every hockey team, every Major League Baseball team, and you combined their earnings together, you still would not equal what the pornography industry produces in America in a single year. Now think about when you're watching Sports Center or you're reading the sports page or you see something about how much one of these players makes. And you go, Oh, that's crazy. You know, the NFL draft was just this week, and those first few guys that get drafted are guaranteed to make like ten million dollars their first season to play a game. And you're like, Man, that's a lot of money. And think about the millions and millions of dollars across all those leagues. And they still don't make more in the pornography industry in the United States. Chat rooms are a great place for bad things to happen. 38% of all conversations in any sort of a chat room type environment on the internet involve explicit conversations between people who are married but not married to the person that they're speaking to. Does that make sense to everyone? 50% of that 38% actually make a phone call and and reach out in a non-virtual way. 50% of that 38%. Of that 50% that make phone contact, 27% of those phone calls lead to an actual affair. That stem from just, oh, I'm just talking away on the internet. It's no big deal. Nothing, Nothing happening here. And there's actually a company that, in a lot of major cities across the U.S., and we, you see them in, I see them in San Antonio sometimes, um, 
in Dallas and Houston, places like that. And there's this company called Ashley Madison. And I don't know if that's a real person or if it's just a name, but if it's a person, this girl is a real piece of work. Um, they have a site, and their advertisement says this, Life is short. Have an affair. This entire website is a dating website for married people who are looking to have an affair to go find someone else who's married who's looking for an affair. And now a few months ago, the hack group Anonymous actually hacked them and released the email addresses and names of all of the people who had accounts on that particular site. And there were some government people that got into trouble um, and probably a lot of regular people that got into trouble as well. You see, these are the... Some of those types of things that they can seem innocent, except that one. It's not really innocent from the get-go. You're going into that one, um, jumping into the deep end. But a lot of these things start out very innocently online. And things, they, they start out with a, with a search, with a conversation, with an opening. And there's so many other things that aren't internet-related in our lives. That little bit of gossip that we spilled, that negative comment that we continue to throw out about someone who's done something to us. Sometimes it leads to what we talked about last week, that little bit of unforgiveness, and then we have a tendency to want to talk. Or if something doesn't go exactly the way that we want it to go, and we start saying, well, you know, I just think it should be different. Blah, 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 blah. And then we just keep going and keep going and we keep going. And what happens is it progressively gets worse and worse and deeper and deeper. And those thoughts become imaginations and those imaginations become strongholds. And there's a great scripture in Philippians about that. And then we have to pull down and bring every thought into captivity, right? But a lot of times we don't do that. So we're going to talk about how do we get, what are the stops along the route that get us to these dangerous places? The first Thing, if you're taking notes this morning, you write down a one, and then you write, being at the wrong place. And by the way, if you have a smartphone and you have the YouVersion app, you can search for our church and you can follow along with everything that's on the screen on your smartphone. That's why they call them smartphones, because they're smart. So I encourage you to do that. It's really super handy to have, and you can also save it and go back and look at things and make sure that what I'm telling you is right, because you should be doing that. Don't just take my word for it. For those of you of 80s children's, then it goes, dun-dun-dun, right? Reading rainbow. Anyone? Thank you for that hand. Man. Being at the wrong place, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. We're going to kind of break this down into several ones. Let's start verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. Let's stop there. See, it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David is meant to be in battle. David is meant to be with his army. David is meant to be with his men. David should be on the front lines taking leadership, should be commanding the things that are happening. But nope, that's not where David finds himself. David sends others and he stays behind. Let's pick it up. Verse number two it says this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And in case you didn't know, David is the king, so he's walking on his own roof. Let's just... Make sure that it's not just like he was weirdly stalking the king's roof, okay? David was the king. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from uncleanliness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David's meant to be with his army, the kings, but David finds himself in a place that he shouldn't have been. But see, it's innocent, though, because he's at his own house. So David didn't start off by, by going to lifeshorthavingaffair.com and, and, and seeking someone out. No, David was just out of position with where he was supposed to be doing and what he was supposed to be doing at that time. So David finds himself in a compromising 
position. And he's on the roof of his house and he sees a beautiful woman to him who's bathing. Now, my entire life, I've found it completely hilariously ironic that her name is Bathsheba. Give it a minute. If you don't get it, you know, ask your neighbor. Um, They can explain it. I've always thought that was hilarious. Bathsheba was taking a bath and helping you alone. So see, so then David sees her, and thus the story goes that we just read. Being at the wrong place. The second thing is David is alone. He finds himself with no accountability because he sent all the leaders to go to battle where he should have been. And so there's no one standing there to go, uh, hey, David, this is a really bad idea. You probably shouldn't do this. Now, keeping in mind that Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is one of David's like, most valiant warriors. He's an important person in David's army. So David finds himself in the wrong place. He finds himself alone because he sent everybody away. And he finds himself in this compromising situation. The third thing that happens along this stop is we see with our eyes. We see with our eyes. You see it there in verse 2. It says that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And this woman was very beautiful. Um, Turn with me over to Genesis chapter number 3. In verse 6, again, I'm reading out of the ESV almost every week, so if yours is a little bit different. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, we see it in the, in the story of David's life here where he gets himself into trouble. He sees Bathsheba, and she's appealing to him. And we see here at the very beginning, the very first sin that's ever committed in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis, we see Eve. And she's, she's walking through the garden, and she's really close to a place that she shouldn't be because that's the one place that God told them, you can't eat from this. You can eat every cow in the garden, but you can't eat this tree. I believe that steaks grew on trees in the Garden of Eden. I can't theologically back that up, but it's my belief about the garden, and you've never been there either, so you can't tell me that I'm wrong. I think there was also bacon on trees. How awesome would that be if you had a bacon tree? You could tell your kids in the morning, hey, son, go outside and pick some bacon. We digressed a bit, but that's okay. Eve sees this fruit, and the Bible says that it was good for food. So she sees that it's going to give her nourishment. But I love the way the ESV says right here, that it was a delight to the eyes. So not only was this fruit good to eat and taste good, but it also looked super good. Like it was one of those things that you look at it and you go, oh, that looks good. And then she says and it also was to be desired because it would make one wise. So we see with our eyes. After we see with our eyes, the next stop on our train is we act on what we see. And this is the part where it changes from seeing things and from being put in a compromising situation to this is where we're actually in the committal phase. This is when we're actually, we're going we're gonna to put our cards on the table. We're going to be invested. We're all in. Is right here when we act on what we see. It's taking it to the next level. And there's a few steps along the way as we act. Number one is inquiry. We ask questions. You see in 2 Samuel in chapter 11, it says, and David sent, in verse 3, and inquired about the woman. See, so he saw her up from the roof and he saw her bathe and he could have left it there. And he could have walked back inside and got back on his couch and went on with his day. But he didn't. He saw her and he was like, who is that? I have to know who that is. So then he gets word back, is this not Bathsheba? The wife of Uriah, the Hittite. 
So ignoring all of the information that comes back, because he's already begun this process of committal, right? He's seen it. He desired it. Now he's inquired about it, and he knows the situation, but he still continues to go down the path and sin for her to be there with him. The next thing after we inquire is we rationalize. Now, this is the proving ground. In, in church, we call this justification. And justification is rationalizing or the proving ground where we take something that's appealing to the flesh that we know we shouldn't be involved in and we basically explain it away of the why it's okay. We all become situational ethics people. And we go, oh, well, no, no, no. Typically, yes, you are totally right. This would not be a good idea. But in this case, this is why it's okay for me to do this. So, you know, David, he's thinking, I mean, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. It's not really that big of a deal. No one's going to know. No one's here. Eve. She looks at it in the book of Genesis. And her rationalization part is this. Yes, it looks good for food. That was the first one. Okay, this is going to be delicious to eat. Number two, it looks good. Number three, it was the tree to be desired to make one wise. So Eve rationalizes in her mind, well, why wouldn't God want me to be wise? Why would this be a bad thing for me to gain wisdom? If I just eat this piece of fruit, I'm going to get wise. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to know and understand more things. How can this possibly be a bad thing? I know God said not to eat it, but what's wrong with wisdom? Wouldn't God want me to be wise? I'm just going to take a bite and we'll just see what happens. It can't be that big of a deal. And it's the same rationalization that we exercise in our lives as we progress down this road. We say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No one's going to get hurt. Not that big of a thing. It's not that big of a deal. So after we've rationalized or justified the situation and the decision, and so many times you, you like to kid yourselves, right? And you think that you justify it after the fact. But the, the fact is, is really most of the time you justify it before you do it. Your brain starts thinking, and you go, oh, I probably shouldn't do this. not a great idea. And then you convince yourself of all the reasons why it is a good idea. And then what happens next, the next stop on this journey, is then it's the cover-up. You know, in the, in the book of Genesis, in the story of Adam and Eve, we see um, right after this sin is committed, all of a sudden they realize that they're naked. They've been running around naked their whole lives and never knew it. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, uh, <clears throat> uh, we need to... Figure something out. So they go get fig leaves and put them together and try to cover themselves up. They try to hide that sin and they hide from God when he comes to talk to them. In the, in the book of Samuel, in 2 Samuel again, uh, in this story of David, after he inquires, look at this, 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go to his own house. Now, through this sequence here, verse 6 through 21, David tries over and over and over again to get Uriah to go home. Why? He was trying to cover up his own sin. Because what he wanted Uriah to do was go home, visit home. Full of our younger ears this morning uh, wanted him to go see his wife. And for them to, they've been apart for a while, they've been at war. And that way, the fruit of David's sin wouldn't come back to his door. Well, Uriah is an honorable man, and Uriah feels weird the whole time about being away from his, his guys. 
He's like, my, the guys that I serve with, they're sleeping outside and they're at war. And now here I am. I can't go back home to my wife and to my family while, while all of my, my friends are at war because I'm supposed to be here. So see, David tries to start the same process in Uriah's life by making him be somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. And it doesn't work. And so David, the Bible says, gives Uriah basically a note to give to Joab, his commanding officer, to say basically this. Hey, um, at the next battle, find the worst place, the place where everyone's going to be defeated, and make sure Uriah's there, and then have everybody pull back from him to make sure that he dies. So our hero, David of the Bible, who slayed the giant, who's the, the man after God's own heart, gives the guy he's trying to kill the orders to have him kill. David's not a nice guy in this chapter. But none of us are when we're in the process of the cover-up. And so what David was trying to do is have Uriah killed so that the fact that everybody knew that he came home, everyone would assume. And Uriah wouldn't be there to be like, no, I never actually went home. And it would free David up to do the right thing. And again, the end of the, the story, Uriah does, in fact, die. And David marries Bathsheba. And it, this alters the course, though, of David's family life from here on out. Because of started with him being where he wasn't supposed to be. And the price, Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and we were all born into sin because of one piece of fruit, because it was appealing to the eyes. It's Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. We have to learn how to overcome all of these stops and these destination points along the way. And the way that we overcome it is by making sure that, number one, we are at the right place. But here it is. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says this. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. See, sin lays at our door constantly. And the context of this story is this is basically the story of Cain and Abel. And this is sort of the hinge point where the murder takes place after this. You see, one brother does what God asks him to do. He brings the best of his flocks and his herds to be sacrificed because God commanded them to bring the best that they had and to give him the best first. That was God's command. But the other brother on this side, he just brings something. He keeps the best for himself. He takes the first bits himself. And then he just brings God something, you know, out of obligation. Like sometimes how we just like go to church just because I'm supposed to be here. And so his sacrifice was not accepted. Because he was disobedient, he wasn't doing what he was meant to do. This sacrifice over here was accepted. So what happens, Cain kills his brother because basically God says this, hey, if you do what you're supposed to do, your sacrifice will be accepted. This is not because I love him any more than you. It's because he's doing what he's supposed to do and you're not. So sin is constantly at the door and the way that we overcome these things in our life is that we make sure that we are investing our resources. And for most of us, the hardest one to let go of is not money, it's time. Where are you sowing the resources of your life? Because here's the thing, when something bad happens, when trouble comes against us in our lives, and we have these things start to happen, oh man, we're quick to pull out the Bible, and we're quick to start quoting God's promises, right? 
in that situation. But the thing that you have to understand is, is that you cannot reap where you haven't sown. You can't write checks out of an account that you haven't deposited into. If you don't put any money into your bank account and you write checks, what happens? Your checks bounce, right? And if by chance one of them does still go through, what happens to your account? It's overdrafted, right? And you have a red number when you look at your bank statement or a minus in front of it. And if you want to get your account back in good standing, what do you have to do? Make a deposit. Well, so many of us are trying to write spiritual checks when things go bad and we're trying to say, oh, God says that he, you know, he's going to, we're going to be more than overcomers. Oh, God says that he's going to do this. Oh, God says he's going to do that. But you haven't deposited any money into God's kingdom. So how do you expect to reap something that you haven't invested in? It doesn't work like that. You don't get to write checks that you haven't deposited money into the account. So, so many of us, we're so busy over here, we're investing the energy and the resources of our lives over here, and yet something happens and then we want to go, oh, but God. But it doesn't work that way. We have to be conscientious of where we're investing our time, our energy, and our money. Don't believe me? You don't have to take my word for it. Nobody did it. Come on. Matthew chapter number 6, verse 21. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasures in heaven where it is safe from the moth and the rust and the burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills with light. If you leave squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. Okay, so for all of you younger people, the word dank here is not a good thing. Okay? These aren't dank memes. Okay? This is bad. It means a stinky, nasty cellar. For those of you who have no idea what I just talked about, don't worry about it. It's okay. It wasn't for you. And the only reason I know what that means is because I have a 17-year-old. Uh, and I'm like, wait, what? Anyways, if you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide and wonder and believe, your body fills up with light. I'm reading out of the message, by the way. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. Jesus says, basically, where you store up your treasure, that's where your heart is. That's where you're living your life. Wherever you're investing your resources, that's what you consider to be the most important things in your life. And again, we cannot reap where we haven't sown. And if you're investing over here into your own kingdom, and you're investing over here into earthly things, you're going to reap earthly things. I have a good friend who's a little bit older than me uh, who was uh, a fighter pilot in the Air Force for a while. He flew F-16s, which I think is like the coolest job in the world. Also quite dangerous. Um, And uh, he retired. And when he was a young guy, uh, there was this new company that had come on the scene called Apple Computers. And he thought it was the neatest thing ever. So when they went public, um, he bought as much Apple stock as he could. Today, we say, wise decision. That initial investment has split and split and split and split and split and split and split. That is reaping great dividends from that investment. And because he still loves to fly, that initial investment in him investing in Apple computers has led to him being able uh, to have a plane and to maintain that plane and the insurance and all the things that go into owning an airplane, which is vast, basically without cutting into their monthly budget at all. It's all paid for by the dividends of this initial investment way back here with Apple. Now, when he told me this, I immediately wanted Apple stock, right? But here's the thing. 
I can't reap an apple dividend of something that I never invested in. So why do we think we can do the same thing with our spiritual lives? Why do we think that we can just get by and, and, and just show up at church and do anything? We don't read our Bibles. We don't invest in our relationship with God. We don't pray. We don't trust him. He's always the last thing that we trust. When we've exhausted every other resource, then we're like, okay. All right, God, it's your turn. You're up to bat. You're all we got left. But we haven't invested anything over here into God's kingdom, but yet we want to reap. And Jesus says, where your treasure is is where your heart is. So this morning, like, we need to pull out the account book of your life and look and see. Where are you investing your resources, your time, your energy, your efforts, your money? Are you investing in your own kingdom or are you investing in God's kingdom? You know, in our bank, we have the, the online, this online banking thing. And they have this really cool deal where you can hit this button and it will take all the things that you've spent money on and it will put it on this really pretty pie chart and it will show you where all your money goes. And it's astonishing sometimes that you're like, holy cow, we spent that much money on that? Ah, we got to make a change. Well, we need to do some spiritual accounting this morning. We need to look at the pie chart of our lives and see, like, where are you investing? What are you spending the most amounts of your time, your energy, and your efforts on? Is it in the things that are going to be pleasing to the Lord and things that are going to build up our spiritual accounts, or is it things that we're building our own accounts? I like the Message Bible sometimes because it just says things the way that you just need to hear it sometimes. And I love this in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, says this. And you can really just stop with the first sentence. Jesus said, are you willfully stupid? Are you willfully stupid? Don't you see that what you swallow can't contaminate you? It doesn't enter your heart, but your stomach. It works its way through the intestines, and it's finally flushed out. Hence the toilet again. But then he says, It's what comes out of a person that pollutes. Obscenities, lust, Thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, carousing. That's a fun word to say, carousing. Usually, I think cats are usually associated with carousing. Mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. All these are vomit from the heart. There is the source of your pollution. I love that, vomit of the heart. Jesus said, what? Whatever man thinks in his heart, so is he. Whatever comes out of the mouth is coming from the abundance of the heart. Vomit from the heart. That's the source of our pollution. It's investing in the right things, making sure that we're in the right place. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Second Corinthians ten three through five. For although we walk with flesh, we do not uh, waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought into captive to obey Christ. Philippians 4, 6 through 8, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. If you look at that list in, in contrast with that list in Mark, It's really easy to see the fruit of your life. Where are you investing? By what comes out of your mouth, by the way that you think, the things that you choose to think about. And so often we make prayer the absolutely last resort. Many of you that are on social media, 
maybe saw that it was a woman that was in a former church of mine. She was 42 years old and had a massive heart attack the other day. She's just come from the gym. She's a health freak. She works out all the time. She loves to work out and, and, and be fit. She came home from the gym with her husband, 42 years old. Said, I don't feel good. I'm going to lay down. He found her unresponsive, not breathing, and no pulse. She'd had a massive heart attack at 42 years old. They rushed her to the ER, to the hospital, let the doctors begin to work. She was without pulse, without breathing, without oxygen for 15 minutes. They finally got her heart to start working again. And what's amazing is David's family had that, where you see that, the peace of God that passes all understanding. You know, we say that a lot in church. We're like, have you ever stopped to think about what that means? What that really means is the peace of God is able to come into your life when it makes absolutely no sense that you should have peace. And in this circumstance, the doctors said the worst. Seven minutes is what science says. If your brain is without oxygen with seven minutes, you start having brain damage. Well, she's double that plus one minute. So the doctor's outlooks were very poor. She was probably going to be in a vegetative state. Do not expect her to maybe even wake up because she was so long. And if she does wake up, we have no idea what the permanent damage is going to be. Last night, her husband states she's moving. Her eyes are open. She's aware. She's following commands. She's responding. She's trying to talk. She's talking a little bit. And the one thing that she wants is for them to take all of the garbage off of her. Science and doctors and everything says, nope, it's not going to happen. But because they were, had that peace of God in a situation that didn't make sense to have, they put out, everybody pray. And some of you, I know, prayed after you saw that when I said, join with us and pray for this lady. And it's amazing what happens when we trust God to do what he's going to do. But we have to be investing in God's kingdom. We have to be doing what is right, what is true, what is just, what is pure, whatever is lovely. So many of these things start out in our lives and they're not as big as having an affair and murdering the husband. Right? I'm pretty sure most of us in here have never done that um, or not planning to. If you are, maybe see us afterwards and we can try to help you with that. <laughs> but the point of all of the, the story of David this morning is, is this, and it's simply this. We have to be careful to make sure that we're where we're supposed to be and that we don't act on what we see when we see. Because it's going to be attractive it's going to be appealing. The Bible says that. The enemy's going to package it in a way that it seems harmless. It's the toilet versus the keyboard. And it's not until you get the microscope out and you really look at what is involved in the toilet and what is involved in the keyboard that you really begin to see just how disgusting what you thought was innocent really is and the damage that it can do. And the thing about David's life and what David did is Uriah and Bathsheba um, and they're Kids to come, David and Bathsheba's kids. Their entire family is altered by this. Uriah is the innocent bystander. And all the people that had to die, the Bible says, for, in order for David to fulfill his plan of Uriah being killed, innocent people's lives were taken because of the cover-up. And what happens is a lot of times you think in your mind when you justify, I'm not hurting anybody, this isn't going to do anything. But the collateral damage outside of your life by the decisions that you make that affect other people is greater than you can even grasp. And we heard from the, the principal of Jefferson this morning and some of the circumstances and situations that we understand that some of these kids live in. Those kids are the innocent byproduct of decisions that were made that those decisions affect them. The decisions that you make as a mom or a dad, as a grandmother, as a grandfather, all those things, they have collateral effect on your kids and your grandkids. The way that you have relationships with other people, the way you deal with trials and circumstances and issues when it comes, these things will all take their toll on the people around you. Do you want it to have a positive God reaction or not? But we can't have it both ways. 
We can't live and invest over here and then when we need it, expect to reap the benefits of God's kingdom. Jesus said, you're either hot or you're cold. You're either here or you're there. You may not like what I'm saying this morning, but again, I didn't write the book. I just have to tell you what it says. And so the thing that I want you to get out of this this morning is the easiest way to stay away from all these things is make sure that you're investing your time, your energy, and your resources in the right place and that you're obeying God and where you're supposed to be. Because David's problem started when he wasn't where he was supposed to be. None of that would have happened. He would have never been on that roof that day, and he would have never seen Bathsheba, and he would have never been tempted if he would have been where he was supposed to be. Don't put yourself in a position to be compromised. Don't put yourself in a position to be compromised. As we get ready to close again, 2 Samuel 11, chapter 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent. David sent. The time that he was meant to be someplace else. And the thing is, we just have to make sure with our lives that we're investing in the right places and that we're doing what God has asked us to do. Even when we do that, the temptations and and things are still going to come. But if we do like that scripture said, that we take every thought and every imagination, right, and we bring it into captivity, it says this, 2 Corinthians again, chapter 10, it says this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Do you know what that means? That means any thought, anything that's getting ready to come out of your mouth or you're getting ready to do with your God, if it goes against what this says, don't do it. That's what it says. Every opinion raised, if it goes against the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God is passed down to us right here in his word. And so if his word says to stay away from it, his word says not to do it, then what are we supposed to do? Take that thought captive. What does captive mean? To arrest it, to seize it, to not let it go any further and bring it into obedience as God's word commands us to do. And if we do that, bring every opinion and every thought into captivity and then to think on the things that Philippians tells us to think on, we can overcome the lie and the trap of the enemy and be exactly where God wants us to be. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we have your word to lead us and to guide us. And God, we know that each and every one of us here, as we begin to take account of our own spiritual books This morning, if we're really honest and look at ourselves, the way that you see our accounts, some of our accounts may be overdrafted. Some of our accounts may not have been a deposit made in a really long time. Some of us, we've just been going through the motions, like Cain's offering. We just brought something. We're instructed, as David said, that I will not offer my God anything that doesn't cost me something. God, you want the best that we have. You want our energy and our resources and our time because you know that if we are investing in the right place that we're going to reap in the right places. So God, for all those keyboard sins that are underneath the keys that are lying there beneath in our lives and that others may not see because of the great facade that we put up and these underneath hidden sins. God, we pray that we would bring those thoughts and those imaginations into captivity and that, God, that you would help set us on the right course this morning. Lord, if we were to ask for hands, each and every hand in this building should go up this morning because we're all guilty. We're all sinners. So this morning I pray, God, that those areas that you don't want exposed, Lord, I pray that you would rip the covers off and expose those things that lie beneath. God, let us have accountability in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you give us the strength and the courage to confess our sins and to live the way that you have called us to live.
God, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace that's new, that while we were still yet sinners, that you sent your son to die. And God, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never accepted that mercy and that grace in their life, God, we pray that today would be the day that they would just say, this morning, Jesus, I give you my life and I surrender myself to the authority of your word. And God, for those of us who are spiritually bankrupt this morning because we haven't invested anything, God, I pray that today that we would begin to invest in the right places. And each of you, as you, as you look at your books this morning, you know right where you're at. God knows right where you're at this morning. And for those of us this morning that we need to, we need to move our, our priorities, we need to shift where we're investing. Some of us need to invest more. Some of us just need to start investing. We don't do this every week here, but I ask as, as everyone is, is heads bowed and they're, they're praying and they're, they're taking spiritual account of themselves, if you would join me this morning by saying, I'm going to make sure that I'm investing in the right places. I'm going to change. I'm going to start investing more of my life where it needs to be. And that doesn't mean necessarily being at church. It means that we're investing our lives in God's kingdom, our resources, our energy, our efforts. And yes, that does include your money. He's either the Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. We have to be willing to surrender that. So if you would join me this morning in saying, like, I'm going to do a conscientious, better job and make sure that I'm depositing in the proper accounts, that I'm leading my family and that I, we, are, we are leading as a church into this community, that we are leading people to the right place. If you would join me this morning, just lift up your hand as a sign to say between you and God, like God, our household, our family, my life, God, we are going to make for sure that our spiritual accounting is on target with what you want us to do. And I thank you for those of you who've lifted your hands, and that's not for me to hold you accountable, but that's between you and God for what you guys are going to do and what God's going to do in you, through us, and among us. And we give God praise for the lives that we've been able to impact at Jefferson, and we hope and continue and pray that we will even be able to have a greater impact um, in the same administration as a new one comes in, that, Lord, that they would be as receptive to us, God, and they would understand the, the impact that we've been able to have in these children's lives. And I pray that as we go this morning, God, that you would give us opportunities to act on what we've talked about this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.